This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. How are you today? Between now and the news at one, you will head to the Kimberley where relief is on the way for pastoralists and businesses in the region after the state government released this week its plan for the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. Also today, there are quite a few rural jobs, rural careers that have been added to the Australian Apprenticeships Priority List. Uh, Among those, blacksmiths, veterinarian nurses and wool classes added to the list. And that is great because once you're on that list, it basically means you're eligible for financial support from the federal government, including direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000. Fiona Simpson from the National Farmers Federation is pretty happy about that, and you will hear from her shortly. Six past 12 on the ABC, right across Western Australia. A two-week work stoppage scheduled to start on Thursday at the state's main grain port is now on hold after a meeting between the Maritime Union of Australia and the CBH Group. Workers at the Quinana Port Terminal successfully negotiated a 5% wage increase late last year, but were still determined to achieve a few non-financial work-related issues. Jeff Kassar is the Assistant Branch Secretary at the Maritime Union of Australia, the WA branch. Jeff, what's the outcome of yesterday's meeting that you had with the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group? We have managed to reach an agreement in principle on an overall package, which allows us to withdraw two days of protected action to take that agreement in principle back to the workforce, uh, assuming that the workforce is satisfied with what we take back to them, and we believe they will be, they will endorse us taking off a further two days of protected action, which will get us to Monday, and CBH has indicated that they will facilitate a meeting for the union and the workforce on Monday, at which we'll um, read through in detail the outcomes and the workforce will vote on whether or not they agree to the overall package in principle, but we are confident they'll be happy. Right, because my understanding was we were sort of staring down the barrel of the possibility of two weeks of industrial action starting on Thursday, and you think that is going to be averted at this point? Uh, you never say never. It's technically on hold at the moment, but I think there's a you know, better than 90% chance that we've reached a resolution that is to the satisfaction, that should be to the satisfaction of all parties. That's my expectation. All right, then. So, look, the last time we spoke, you were outlining sort of the, the main non-financial work-related issue that was seemed to be the real sticking point, and that was representation at disciplinary meetings. Have the workers been able to achieve that? Look, part of the conversation with CBH was that we wouldn't disclose the details of what the outcome was. But let me just say that we're confident that we've reached an outcome that will be to the satisfaction of all parties. We might not have achieved everything that we were after, but we've got the basics of what we were looking for in that regard. Were you confident that this is how it was going to unfold? In this job uh, and dealing with employers, and not unlike CBH, I'm never 
supremely confident of any outcome. You read the play as best you can. If you had have asked me a month ago, did I think that people would have to go out the gate for those last couple of claims that were what seemed to be unlikely to be sticking points, I would have said that you know, it wasn't going to happen. When CVH and the workforce uh, made it very clear this week that they were both going to dig in on the same issue, I couldn't see any other outcome other than people going out the gate. It was right at the 11th hour that the parties were able to reach a compromise. And as I said, the compromise has been reached between the bargaining committees. It's still got to go back to the, the workforce. As I said, I'm confident that the workforce will be satisfied with the package, but it's not over until the, uh, until the workforce votes. It does sound like CBH came to the party just in the last sort of, um, you know, dying hours of all of this negotiation. What, what's, what's changed, do you think? Oh, look, I, I think, I hope anyway. I, I obviously don't get to see what happens behind closed doors at CBH, but my read on it would be that they considered the price that they were, the stakes. I, I think they really would have, they must have considered the high stakes for the relatively low. Let's be honest, the, the people that we're talking to probably, um, they have backgrounds and they come from, they don't, they haven't worked at CBH all their lives. They've worked at other companies. And I know that most of the management around the table are used to, at their previous work sites, employees having the right to representation at these meetings. And the people we're actually speaking to would understand that that doesn't derail the investigation and it doesn't, well, you know, it doesn't undermine the integrity of the investigation. Look, I, I have said previously, I'm not convinced that CBH was getting particularly good legal advice throughout the process. CBH is a pretty complicated company with lots of departments and each of them has to have their say. And sometimes when you've got that many chiefs, it can become difficult to reach decisions. Do you think the decision that the, or the agreement that the workers at Quinana well, you know, seem to have been able to reach with CBH, as you said, it's got to go back to them and, you know, for the final tick of approval. Do you think it's got flow-on effects for CBH workers at other terminals or in other departments? Look, I, I have no doubt that when other EBAs come up, I, I know for a fact that our members look at other EBAs that CBH has done. Let's be honest, the claim for the disciplinary process that in the end became a major sticking point I know that our members at the plant cottoned onto that because they saw that clause existing in another EBA and in another part of the CBH business. I can't deny that there'll be influence. With regard to which claims, I couldn't tell you. I, I honestly don't know, don't have a good insight of how other unions and other union members, how much attention they pay to other EBAs. I would imagine at least with the um, wage increases, they'll be looking at the EBA and using that as a benchmark. I know that I would. Yeah, that was the one so, that came to my mind as well, the yeah, fact that they were able yeah. to win that 5% wage claim over three years, I think it was, uh, late last year. Yeah, well, as I said, I can't pretend that if I heard that uh, one of the other unions achieved that, that I wouldn't be asking for the same, or if not better. So I would expect that the same will result. What do you think has been learned through this process? I can tell you what I think should have been learned. After 10 years of dealing with CBH, I'm not going to hang my hat on the fact that it's been learned. I think the CBH needs to have somebody lead their EBA negotiations who has experience in that field uh, and who has is given the authority to make decisions 
on behalf of multiple departments rather than having to go and get authority and approval from multiple departments along the way. That's, you know, that's my read from the outside looking in. As I said, I don't get to see what happens behind closed doors, but I have to make an assessment based on what I see. And all the way through those negotiations, we were getting answers at the table that then what seemed to happen was that then they took that back to the people that they answered to and things got changed and brought back to the table in a contorted, twisted form um, that didn't represent or reflect what had been agreed previously. Once that happens two, three, four times, the workforce just becomes so frustrated that, it, let's be honest, if I'm going to be totally honest, it probably doesn't become about the actual claims anymore. It becomes, it just, the emotion takes over and people are probably flying a little bit blind on uh, anger. How are the workers feeling, Jeff? I mean, I, I know you only had your meeting yesterday with CBH. Have you had a chance to kind of gauge the mood? I mean, they're back at work. Uh, what's the feeling there? Yeah, no, and that, that, that is a good question. I'm not going to lie. I've been wondering the same thing overnight. We have reached out to the uh, membership through our WhatsApp group, and you know, um, we haven't had a great deal of feedback yet because it was so late yesterday that we got to a position. I know that when I met with the workforce yesterday, they were still angry. They were still angry that simple things hadn't been fixed, things that uh, the company had given a commitment to provide uh, last week still hadn't been provided. And look, fair's fair. Some of the HR team at CBH were ill, but the workforce, like I said, once once you get to this point and, and the history, the context that we've had leading up to this, the workforce aren't interested in whether somebody from CBH was sick and couldn't deliver on the clauses that they said they were going to deliver on. All the workforce sees is they told us they would have this for us by Friday. It's now Tuesday. We still don't have it. What's going on? They need to be taught a lesson. And, and, and you know, a lot of what we're dealing with is perception and frustration. Mm, really interesting insights, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Belinda. Jeff Kassar, he's from the Maritime Union of Australia. That meeting yesterday with the CBH group and it looks like that two-week work stoppage scheduled to start on Thursday at the Quinana Port Terminal. Well, it looks like it's being averted at this point. Technically, as Jeff was just saying, uh, that action is on hold for now. The CBH group says it had a positive meeting with the bargaining representatives yesterday with both parties working through the remaining non-financial claims. CBH says we made good progress on the outstanding claims including the right to representation and it looks forward to meeting with the Maritime Union of Australia again today to finalise drafting of the outstanding clauses over the coming days and averting the upcoming industrial action. On the text, Mick says, sounds like the workers wanted a long weekend off. What a crock. Thanks, Mick. 0448 922604. That is the text if you would like to have your say this afternoon. 16 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjima, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Well, it's not every day that one of the big players in the fertiliser industry comes onto the show to talk about demand, supply and prices. But it did happen yesterday when Ben Sudlow from CSBP, the big fertiliser company based here in Perth, was here on the Country Hour. And with the cricket on yesterday, you may have missed that conversation, but you can still catch it on the ABC Listen app 
or the WA Country Hour webpage. You can listen in your own time. But today I just want to recap some of the key points that Ben raised yesterday. Uh, Run them past you and also run them past episode three analyst Andrew Whitelaw. Andrew, overseas fertiliser prices have come off some of those heady highs that we saw over the last couple of years. Can you give us a sense of that? How dramatically has the overseas price changed? Look, it's been quite a quite a substantial fall in the last couple of months. Most of the most of the rise in fertilizer prices, specifically urea, has come from really high energy prices. And so we saw those gas prices in Europe rise through the roof in the last really last year or so, especially since the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so what we've seen now is that those fertilizer prices have just got too high. And that's one of the reasons that prices are falling. And there's been a bit of demand destruction, which is basically people using less in parts of the world. Uh, but also in the last probably two or three months, there's been some changes in Europe. Um, there's been some moves to have a, a floor in or a ceiling in gas prices, but also because of those really high gas prices in Europe, we're finding more uh, things like LNG coming from China into Europe to try and compete and bring, and that's bringing down gas prices. And so, so basically what we're seeing is uh, fertilizer prices, if we look at it from like a global level, and uh, we saw at some points last year uh, we saw prices around about that sort of globally at about $1,200 a tonne. Um, and this is the Middle Eastern urea price. And it's now dropped down to the sort of the, the between the five and 650 uh, mark. So a considerable fall basically in the past six months or so. And, and that's pretty welcome, hopefully. Yeah, so that's on the that's globally speaking. Ben Sudlow from CSBP was here yesterday and he was saying those overseas prices are starting to flow onto the domestic market. We've started importing product from probably July in 22 for this year. We're bringing shipments in pretty continually. And as um, those have come in, we've pricing those and reflecting the, the changing costs into, into, the, into the marketplace. Andrew, are you seeing those overseas prices reflected in the domestic market? Look, this is one of the difficulties that we get as analysts and the industry in general is that there is it's not like grain prices or sheep prices or wool prices where we can see what the price is fairly easily we can we can pull out our phone and we can see what the price is the reality is there is no transparent mechanism for seeing australian fertilizer prices it's it's basically you know you phone up you get a price and your price might be the same as your next door neighbor it might not be and so it's hard to say, but anecdotally, we've been talking to, to to a few farmers around the country, and and yes, prices are still are falling. Uh, we we're hearing some in the ranges for talking about urea, you know, as low as nine hundred and as high as you know eleven hundred. So so the prices are pretty variable around the country. So so not matching the falls that we've seen overseas. Look, not not matching the the, the, the falls. It's um, it's still considerably higher, and there are there are some sort of reasons used in that. For instance, you know we have to wait until the uh, the stocks are gone, and uh, before we, before the price gets passed on, and they have to wait until new ships come in. I guess that's maybe a sign of maybe a lack of hedging, lack of risk management uh, by uh, 
fertilizer importers. I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, but at the moment, um, it's a wait and see about when when that comes through. When those prices do start to, you know, show the overseas falls that we've we've experienced in the last uh, two to three months, and whether it comes before seeding or not is 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 the the next question. <laughs> sure is. Ben Sudlow from CSBP was saying yesterday that the fertilizer companies aren't interested in high prices. One thing that's probably key in here too, if you think about the fertilizer suppliers, is that we don't want high prices. We would like the we we like uh, to put volume through the the business, and what that means is if we can have our costs low. The farmers buy volume. You know, we've seen some demand destruction um, globally on particularly products like potash. And as prices come off, we want to reflect those cost reductions so that farmers can make good economic decisions to put uh, what they need on to grow the crop and hopefully put more on. Andrew, what do the statistics show you? Are the suppliers more interested in moving greater volumes than they are sort of worried about the price of fertiliser? Look, I think at the end of the day, uh, each company is very different. We've got we've got companies who are effectively trading fertilizer, who are not producers of fertilizer, and we've got companies which import. For instance, they might be mining potash, and and if they weren't interested in price, they could hold the price down if they actually wanted to. But that's that's the reality. Every business has got its own uh, views on things. We know if we look at certain listed fertilizer companies. Uh, we can see that their profitability does increase during times of higher uh, fertilizer pricing. So, yes, volume is always going to be important, but if there's the ability to extract a higher margin, I'm assuming that they would uh, be wanting to do that and they'd be wanting to do that for the benefit of the shareholders. 23 past 12 here on the country are. And I was also keen to hear what um, Ben Sudlow from CSBP thought about the idea of more price transparency in the fertiliser market and he did raise a, a previous inquiry that was held some time ago. I, I do recall there was a, a parliamentary inquiry back in 2008-9, same thing. The ACCC got involved, they did their uh, work on it and as I recall, and I haven't read that for a long time, they were comfortable for which the fertiliser prices did reflect that of the offshore markets, but are they? Do they reflect it instantaneously? Instantaneously, no, they they don't, and they can't, and they never will, because people we buy ships as we all do, in you know thirty five thousand ton tranches, and we may not always buy all those on the bottom of the market. So, is price transparency in the fertilizer industry possible, Andrew? Absolutely, it's. it's, it's it's a market like any other market out there. You know, we've got transparency on diesel pricing, fuel price, uh, fuel pricing, uh, grains. Transparency is typically, by most economists, considered to be the sort of the um, a key thing for ensuring an efficient market. It gives us the ability to look at that, make decisions. We can we can see how the market is performing against other places. We can we can see well. Are prices sticky? Do they take a lot longer to fall? Do they rise as soon as the market uh, increases overseas? And do they take a bit longer to fall down? The ability to analyse that and the ability for the industry in general uh, to to be able to see how the market compares relative to the rest of the world 
is, is in our view, something that's pretty important. And you believe it's a matter of time before that is available here in Australia? Uh, look, at the end of the day, I think eventually um, the market will, will do what it has to do. I think eventually, um, as a company, we do our own sort of look at increasing transparency through various models and censuses on, uh, on fertiliser pricing. Uh, but eventually, I think it's in the, not just the farmer's interest, but I think it's eventually in the fertiliser company's interest to have transparency on pricing. At the end of the day, it's just a price. And it doesn't matter whether the price, there's, there's no real reasons why there can't be a published price on fertiliser. There are none that stand up to economic scrutiny, at least. Now, CSBP also believes the demand for fertiliser is going to be very high this year. You've taken off 50 million tonnes of grain over two years, um, which in in not that long ago, that was a, that would take four years to produce, nearly four years to produce that sort of grain. And the, the nutrient removal levels um, that come off sort of 50 million tonne of grain is, um, is colossal. Yeah, so the expectation is that that's got to be replaced at some point in time. And the demand for fertiliser on the back of that, notwithstanding it's got to be a cost equation for the growers, against their yield is expected to be very high. Andrew, what do you think? How's demand going to be like this year? Oh, absolutely. Like, like I'm, I'm no agronomist. Um, but my basic understanding is that, you know, the bigger crop you have, the more nutrients get sucked out the ground. And we have had some pretty big crops, east and west coast, in the last couple of years, which does pump up that, that demand. And people will be looking to to uh, refill those nutrients, you know, fill the pantry back up. And I think the reality is that hopefully these fertilizer prices start to come back down so that in the next couple of months, you know, farmers can actually get back into the market, refill the uh, nutrients at a lower pricing point than we have seen for the past, you know, 18 months or so. Yeah, it's still volatile though. I mean, it, you couldn't sort of bank on that. No, absolutely not. And I think that's that's one of the key things is that the big risks we see is that, well, fertilizer prices fall overseas and, and, and it doesn't get reflected here. Um, even if fertilizer gets bought at a lower price overseas, there's no need to pass that on if the if the overseas price rallies in the next two months. So it's just the inability to see whether prices have been passed on or not in a, in a clear and transparent matter. Well, look, thank you for being part of the WA Country Hour here, Andrew. And uh, I did want to finish off just asking you about a, a special Scottish celebration this evening. Is it Burns Night? What's that about? Well, of course. Uh, every, everyone talks about Australia Day, but everyone forgets Burns Night. Uh, which is on uh, Wednesday the 25th of January every year. And that, that date isn't likely to change. And the reality, it's, a, um, it's a celebration of Australia's, uh, Scotland, sorry, most famous poet and one that all Australians know because they sang Old Lang Syne at New Year's Eve, mm. which was written by him in my hometown of Dumfries in God's country. Well, you were the band to talk about that today then. Thank you for enlightening me. I'd never actually heard of it. Well, you've got to make sure you get haggis and bagpipes out tonight. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely on the agenda. Andrew, thank you. Anytime. Andrew Whitelaw, he is an analyst with Episode 3. It is 28 past 12 here on the Country Hour. An update from the newsroom shortly. First, though, just a quick trip to the southwest of the state where one cherry grower is still harvesting. But hopefully, 
Should be finished this week. Might have finished now, in fact. Kathy Grisotis grows cherries in Manjimup and is looking forward to crossing the finish line. Cherry season has been great with regards to yield. Prices have been steady, except for the bit of a lull from Christmas to about 10 days into January, which is always the case. Supermarkets have a lot of Christmas produce left. Everyone's on holidays. With regards to our season, it started very late. It started about the 20th of December and we're just wrapping up tomorrow. By exactly how much later are you talking? Uh, Two weeks. And are other growers done now? Yeah, the other growers would have been done about seven to ten days ago. Donnybrook possibly even before that, not long after Christmas. At least how much more significant have the yields been this year? Yields have been great. Our yield increased by over a third. I think it's mainly due to the great winter we had. Not only was it cold, but we had a lot of chill hours. So the chill hours have got to be X amount of hours a day. Uh, Not just, you don't go just by temperature. So that was good. That determines fruit set quite a lot. So what does it mean for you to have yields over a third more than usual? That's quite significant. Yes, it was. It was challenging, but we got through. A lot of the variety, we've got a lot of different varieties and, and quite a few of them, because of the season so late, when the warm weather started, a lot of them, instead of just going from one variety to the next to the next, a lot of them came on together. That was the challenging part, getting them all picked at the same time. So you've been super busy then. Oh, yes. It's, um, it's only a very short season, four weeks, but it's very, very intense. So how are you feeling now that you're pretty much done? Happy. <laughs> Happy I can veg out for a bit. Like I said, it's intense for the pickers and for the packing staff. You know, the packing staff are on on concrete anywhere between 9 to 12 hours a day. And the pickers, they start very early, so we don't pick when the fruit is hot. So both pickers and packers were great. I'm sure there'll be a little celebration when that harvest is over. Majumup cherry grower Kathy Grisotis speaking to Sophie Johnson. It's 29 to 1 and Brianna Shepherd is here with an update from the newsroom. Hello. Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the government expects inflation has now peaked but will remain high for some time. Inflation reached 7.8% in 2022, according to figures released today, higher than many economists expected. Gas giant Santos has been ordered to pause construction on the pipeline for its massive Barossa gas project north of Darwin. During a surprise site visit by the regulator, inspectors found the company had overlooked some potential risks to Tiwi Island's cultural sites. Santos says it will comply with the direction and that its original environment plan for the pipeline was approved nearly three years ago. And a vigil has been held in Monterey Park in the US state of California for victims of a mass shooting on Saturday. Eleven people were killed when a gunman opened fire on a dance hall during Lunar New Year celebrations. More news coming up at one o'clock. Brianna, thank you so much for that update. 28 to 1, still to come between now and the news at 1. It's off to Katanning today for the results of the Katanning sheep market. Tracy Kilner is going to go through that. And if you didn't already know, that's the end of the livestock markets this week because of the Australia Day public holiday tomorrow. There won't be any Mount Barker cattle sales tomorrow or on Friday, so no wiener or, or trade sale 
at Mount Barker this week. But Tracy, along with the details of the Catanning sheep market just before the news at one. And off to the Weather Bureau next. Seven to one on the ABC across Western Australia, and Luke Huntington is here now. He's from the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke, can we start in the north of the state, and in particular um, in the lead up to well that low pressure system and whether or not it's going to form into that cyclone? It'd be very interesting to hear what you have to say. What's the latest from the bureau? Yeah, so we do have that um, tropical um, low up just offshore from the North Kimberley coast at the moment. So it's a fairly weak system. Um, I guess the story is that it we have high confidence it will not become a tropical cyclone now. So it's going to remain as a weak tropical low. Um, it would probably drift westwards over the coming days and then move southwards on Friday and then probably just stall off the east or west uh, uh, Kim. sorry, stall off the East Pilbara coast or the West Kimberley uh, coast there and then um, sort of uh, dissipate over the weekend. But what it's going to do is it's going to increase the moisture across um, parts of the East Pilbara and into the Kimberley uh, over the coming days. So we will probably see an increase in shower and thunderstorm activity. So for today, um, as I mentioned, the low is off the North Kimberley coast. So we're not really seeing too much apart from that Northern Kimberley where we could see um, the odd isolated heavy fall. But otherwise, the remainder of the Kimberley are pretty quiet today. Uh, we are seeing the usual showers and thunderstorms over the Pilbara region um, and into parts of the Gascoigne, but they should have less rainfall associated with those storms. Um, and then tomorrow, the rainfall um, activity does increase pretty much right throughout the Kimberley. Uh, there could be some isolated heavy falls, so probably around the 60 to 80 millimetres um, in those isolated areas if you do get some good thunderstorms uh, go through that area. Um, and a continuation of the showers and thunderstorms uh, pretty much right throughout the Pilbara um, into the interior region uh, tomorrow with probably less rainfall uh, that, than the Kimberley. So as that tropical low does move south on Friday, um, it does continue to increase the moisture over the Kimberley area and parts of the East Pilbara. So um, we've probably seen rainfall totals increase a little bit, especially around that West Kimberley coast, sort of that broom, dampier peninsula area where they do have had all that rainfall recently, unfortunately. So, but any any of the heavier falls through there will be um, sort of pretty isolated and mostly confined with thunderstorms. There will be some shower activity around, but um, those heavier falls, again, mostly confined with thunderstorms storms, maybe getting up to around 60 to 80 millimetres in isolated areas if you do get that, um, if you do get a good thunderstorm move through that area. Um, and we probably will see um, over, over this, the weekend continuation of that moisture through the Kimberley. So again, probably confined to that East Pilbara and West Kimberley where those heavier falls will be. Again, isolated falls to 60 to 80 millimetres. And then the, uh, the low uh, most likely dissipates just offshore on the Sunday period. So while 
while there could be uh, some more heavy falls over the West Kimberley Coast and East Pilbara that should be easing later in the day just as that moisture source uh, decreases. And then, Luke, what have you got for the Southwest Land Division this afternoon and the rest of the week? Yeah, it's um, fairly quiet over the Southwest Land Division today. So the only um, precipitation we're expecting is just with some isolated thunderstorms over the very far northeastern parts of the Central West District today. Um, when I say precipitation, it's you're probably not going to get too much in, in any thunderstorms, so less than a millimetre or so. Um, we do have a ridge developing south of the state, so it's keeping the remainder of the Southwest Land Division generally clear. There's just a little bit of cloud along the south coast at the moment. Um, as we head into tomorrow, the ridge will dominate the south of the state, um, but we could see the trough developing back towards um, the central west and in, into northern parts of the wheat belt tomorrow. So that'll be the, probably the focus for um, shower and thunderstorm activity for tomorrow afternoon. Maybe a little bit more rainfall associated with those storms, but I wouldn't say it's going to be uh, too much in those areas. Um, and then in, into Friday, we do have a cold front uh, coming through the far southwest. So Probably those showers will probably reach up to around Bunbury across to Esperance uh, during the morning and afternoon. And just east of the cold front, we do have a, a line of uh, showers and thunderstorms forecast uh, through uh, northeastern and eastern parts of the southwest land division. So most likely area is over the northeastern wheat belt and over areas uh, just east of Esperance there. Um, they could have a little bit of rainfall associated with them. So it could even get around uh, two to five millimetres isolated 10 to 20 um, with with any thunderstorms. Um, as we head into the weekend, uh, the next ridge will come in behind the cold front. So that'll pretty much clear out um, all the thunderstorm and shower activity. We're not expecting uh, any, any precipitation on the Saturday period. And by Sunday, uh, we will see the trough developing off the west coast again uh, with some shower and thunderstorm activity forecast for northern parts of the southwest land division. So probably getting into uh, the central west district and northern parts of the wheat belt. And then the warnings for this afternoon, Luke. Yeah, so we do have a marine wind warning, um, just some strong winds about the west coast. And we do have a minor flood warning for the Nullagine and Coogan rivers. Great. Thank you for all those details, Luke. Appreciate that. It is 21 to 1. And now time to take a look at the rainfall figures. So looking back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking 5 mils and over. Not much about, really. In northern and eastern forecast districts, firstly, in the Kimberley, Troughton Island, 12, Truscott, 21, and Yampy Sound, 12. Then in the Gascoyne, Dairy Creek, 17, Durawara, 5, Mount Clare, 8, Murgoo, 7, and Ningen Station had 10. And there was no rain over 5 millimetres in the Southwest Land Division. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, relief is on the way for pastoralists and businesses in the Kimberley after the state government this week released its plan for the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. The East Kimberley has been cut off from the rest of the state since major flooding damaged the region's only major highway at the bridge. It's meant pastoralists are unable to access markets and freight costs have skyrocketed. Transport Minister Rita Safiotti says a barge system will soon be up and running over the Fitzroy River, initially using tugs. That system will be operating while Main Roads works on a low-level floodway crossing. She says the temporary crossing will put in place within the next four months while a new bridge is built. 
We've started the tender process for the new big permanent structure. So that process is now underway and we'll be engaging with a number of companies and what we're seeking is to fast track that process that normally maybe takes six to 12 months, bring it down to two or three weeks so we can select a contractor. We can then work again with the local Aboriginal communities, with the council on identifying the best design and also how we can deliver it as quick as possible. Transport Minister Rita Safiotti. Malcolm Edwards is the president of the Shire of Halls Creek, which sits to the east of the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. While he's pleased to see a plan to reconnect the region to the rest of the state, he is frustrated there aren't more transport options. He's been calling for the Tanami Road, which runs between Halls Creek and Alice Springs, to be sealed for several years now. It's a pity the Tanamar is not bitumised at the moment because that would save us direct link through to Adelaide. So it's a pity about that, but yeah, I suppose we have to live with it. And just on that point with the Tanamar, at least now um, there are pledges to get it sealed, but you've been lobbying for this for decades. If it had been sealed 10 years ago, it would have been that extra lifeline into the region. That's right. I remember Hayden Sale telling me when they had that problem with cattle before when they were sending cattle by ship overseas and that was put on hold, he said if that Tanama was bitumised, we'd have access to southern markets. Well, at the moment, they are cut off from Broome and there at the moment they are cut off from the meatworks. And so, you know, that Tanama at this stage for the pastoral industry would have been a lifesaver. Um, do you think it shows this disaster that the government should, uh, when they are sealing the Tanama, they should get it done promptly in time given... You know, with climate change, these sort of things may happen more often into the future, these one-in-a-hundred-year events. Yeah, I know. It gives another access into the Kimberley, which is, uh, I think this is just to tell you how vulnerable our roads are to the north, even even they can cut up into the Territory. It just shows how vulnerable we are. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's important that we have that other access. Halls Creek Shire President Malcolm Edwards speaking to Ted O'Connor about the need for improvements to the road network in the state's north. 17 to 1 and staying in the Kimberley for a little longer now because a new smoking treatment is being trialled on native seeds being used to help rehabilitate the Kimberley's Argyle Diamond Mine. After Rio Tinto closed the mine about two years ago, traditional owners have been part of a seed collection program to revegetate the site about 180 kilometres south of Kununurra. They're hoping a new trial underway this wet season, which imitates bushfire, will help the plants prosper once they're re-sown. Gelgenium Seed Operations Manager Riley Shaw and Gaija man Andrew Daylight are part of the program. They've been involved in collecting and smoking the seeds. Riley Shaw says he's hopeful the smoking treatment will make a big difference. Today we are smoke treating all of the seed that we have to return back to the Argyle Diamond Mine site uh, for the restoration activities out there for this year's seeding operation. Right, and so what am I looking at here? I can see a a tunnel that's uh, sort of covered with a tarp and uh, there's a lot of smoke around. Can you paint a bit of a picture? All right, Um, so yes, this is our smoking tunnel. Uh, The idea is that we want to replicate a bush fire to our seed uh, to break its dormancy mechanisms uh, so it will germinate better on site. 
So here we have a, a tunnel that we've constructed earlier this week uh, with star pickets and uh, polypipe. She's pretty basic, but it does the job. So yeah, we've got the basics of the tunnel. We lay our seed down on the inside uh, once it's all been mixed up. Uh, we put the plastic over the top that you can see there uh, and make a fire. Wait till the fire's raging in a contained area. And then we put some uh, snappy gum leaves on there, some green leaves, to create a billow of smoke. And we get a big fan and we pump that smoke into the tunnel. Right. And so the idea is that that smoke will help the seeds in there germinate? That's correct. Yep. So the smoke... Now, a lot of Australian natives need uh, smoke to deactivate their dormancy mechanism so it will make them wake up, so to speak, uh, and germinate better once we spread them out on site. And so the reason you do it this, at this time of year is because the wet season's onset and the plants have a better chance of surviving? Pretty much, yep. So once the seeds are spread out on site, uh, through various mechanisms they're not irrigated it all depends on our wet season climate um, to one germinate those seeds with wet season moisture and to keep them growing and get established so we need to seed when there's going to be imminent rains and continued wet season weather have you done this before is this the first time you've you've sort of put up a, a tunnel like this no, we haven't done it before. It's our first season of doing our seed treatment mixing and seed smoking, so it's pretty cool. It's uh, pretty exciting for the team to be involved in. Involved in the program is really um, good. Just um, going out the bush, um, ripping lots of heaps of trees, just the high ones, the short ones, and just taking all the branch off from the trees and just like putting in the trails and put it in the brown bags, yeah. And is there a big crew that, that works with you? I'm um, just only five of us. It's really, um, yeah, it's really good. Some from Kananara, some from, from Dundun. Um, uh, me, I'm just stays and warm. They just um, come and pick me up every Monday. How is it? Is it pretty hard work? Uh, not really. When The f- first time when you get into the um, job is so hard. When, you, when you're in the middle of it, it's so easy. Yeah, you can just run around with um, bars and just run around and just pick trees, yeah. Have you ever been involved in anything like this before? No, this is my first time. I love it, yeah, pretty good. What's the, what's the best bit about it? Um, it's the boys, it's um, like going out, look at the stars at night. In the morning we get up about 8 o'clock, yeah, just pick up any trees was like far away from the camps and just start to pluck them pluck the trees out yeah have you ever seen anything like this before we've just seen some smoking take place with all that seed inside a sort of a a big long tunnel is that something you've seen before and what what do you think um it's my first time just seeing um thing like this is really um like really good i'm just like next time we do this we we don't need the boss we can do it ourselves the voice and i suppose that the idea is that the uh the smoke here will set off some germination like a, a bushfire would out in you know the natural Kimberley landscape. That's pretty cool. What do you think about that? Um, it's really good. Yeah, like when you got the fires ripping them, like burning the trees, and they, like when you got a bit of rain, something like that, um, bring the leaf back and the seeds. Yeah, grows it more better. 
So that's something you would have seen happen in the natural sort of warm and airy. If there is a bushfire, you notice the, the big difference when a fire does pass through? Yes. Lots of um, seeds just um, popping out and there's um, flowers. Yeah. And what does it mean to you to, to be involved in something like this that is restoring this beautiful country back to uh, sort of its natural state? Oh, yes. Lovely. Just having mess around and um, things like in the mines and things like that. We need to um, put more trees, in, uh, like seeds and trees in there to um, cover the holes and things like that. By kind of mid-year next year, we'll get a good idea of what's germinated, what hasn't uh, throughout the wet season. Uh, and they do run trials out there on site to see uh, successes in the seeding operations. So hopefully by mid-next year, we'll get an idea of what's germinated, what's worked, what hasn't, and better things to improve for the next season. Gelgenium Seed Operations Manager Riley Shaw ending that report from Steph Sinclair. 11 minutes to one. The federal government has updated its Australian apprenticeships priority list, adding an extra 39 occupations. Uh, new to the list are blacksmiths, vet nurses and wool classes. And if your career of choice is on the list, it means you're eligible for financial support from the government, including direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000. The National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson says it's great news. To see these sorts of professions being recognised in a list like the Apprenticeships Priority List, albeit that this list covers occupations that are actually formally treated as apprenticeships and occupations that are also treated as a traineeship, which is a, a subtle sort of difference, but an important one, I think, as we go forward towards our, our 2030 aims of having agriculture as an industry of choice and an industry where young people um, understand that they can be supported to have a strong career and understanding the skills too, I think, and recognising the skills that are um, involved in some of the professions within our industry. So very good news this morning. As you say, two quite specific ones around wool classing, which we know there's a huge shortage of, and also uh, piggery stock people, but also some peripheral ones like vet nurses, for example, which are in huge demand, gardeners, tree workers, blacksmiths and horse people. So very good news this morning, I think. We've spoken at end about the, the workforce crisis. Where are we at at the moment in far, as far as the trends we've seen in more recent times? Has anything started to ease in any sectors or do we just need more of this, more um, investment into our younger people and people looking to retrain for the sector? Look, that's absolutely right. Uh, we need more of the same. We know solving this workforce crisis in agriculture is complex. We know that it involves bringing in more people from overseas who are, are really wanting to work in our sector and some on a short-term basis and some wanting to settle in Australia. But we also know it's very much about uh, placing agriculture as an industry of choice for people who are school leavers or young people. And right now there is this enormous sort of opportunity, I guess, and, and ambition and excitement around agriculture. And it's important that we can harness the excitement that's around uh, you know, the sustainable agriculture industry of the future with the right skills and the right people and give those people pathways in our industry and give people confidence that there are long-term 
strong employment options within many sectors of, of agriculture. And so we're going to continue to, to work with government and to lobby for not just more occupations to be added to this list, but more occupations in agriculture to be recognised as apprenticeships, which will provide then support not just for the people entering those those apprenticeships, but also, of course, for the employers that are taking on those people who want to be trained in our sector. National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson speaking to Amelia Bernasconi. Eight to one. Well, it's not only the ag sector that's struggling to find workers. One of the country's biggest gold miners says Western Australia continues to be the toughest labour market in the country. Evolution Mining operates mines here in WA, Queensland, New South Wales and Canada. In WA, it employs about 500 people at its Mungurri operations near Kalgoorlie. Managing Director Laurie Conway says the only way around the skills shortage situation at Mungurri is to increase the number of fly-in, fly-out workers. WA continues to be the area that we experience the highest turnover. We are exposed to a an increase in our FIFO workforce, which is now sitting in that 25% of the workforce at Mungari and, and changing habits of people over there wanting to be more FIFO. That's the issue that Scott and them are handling with. The good thing is that uh, each month for the last couple of months, the number of roles that we're filling is, is above the number of departures. So hopefully we are starting to see that slow down a little bit at Mungari. I think on the East Coast, we're still experience the access and, and sorry and in WA it's it's a lot around the tradespeople uh, in particular versus the operators and then on the east coast you know we we're seeing it it hasn't really moved upward or downward in the last three to, to six months it's been pretty consistent um, but I think where you know for our operations Ernest Henry FIFO Mount Rawdon is generally residential drive in drive out where People are comfortable in that southeast Queensland region. Um, and then for Cal in the central west, the turnover hasn't been as high as probably what it was this time last year. Larry Conway, Managing Director of Gold Miner Evolution Mining. Five to one. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market in a moment. First, though, as shoppers demand more and more information about where their clothes come from, there's been a real growth in sustainable fashion. Now the Australian wool industry has partnered with a French company to make running shoes that are biodegradable and made from 100% recyclable materials. John Roberts, CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, says it's an exciting partnership. Wool shoes and wool sneakers and wool runners aren't necessarily that new. We've been working on them for the best part of a decade or more. But what was interesting about this one was the, the um, Circle Sportswear, a sustainability-focused brand, and that's their, very much their, their daily mantra, and the exciting thing was they came to us and they recognised us as a sustainability partner because we have a natural biodegradable fibre which aligns with their ethos, if you like. So that was exciting in the first instance. In terms of what it means for wool growers is I think, you know, in the past, there had, as I say, there have been shoes with wool uppers. This is a, an entirely biodegradable shoe with a very, very you know, significant wool component in it. And for these particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, these, these sort of very sustainably minded 
consumers are looking for a shoe that can do all of those things, be the complete package in terms of biodegradability. So it's an awareness piece. It's a, it's a, it's a demand driving piece. So I think it's, it's very good for wool growers. And do you think there's a lot of growth amongst environmentally minded consumers, particularly in Europe? Absolutely. We think that particularly the Gen Zs who are going to be our biggest, biggest customer in the, within the next eight to 10 years, that's very much front and centre for, for that consumer and that's, that's who we need to engage with. So far, I've looked on the website, only uh, 268 pairs have been pre-ordered for delivery in 2024. So it looks like it's still a niche part and it could be some way off before there's a, there's a big market for this demand for, for Merino uh, in, in these shoes. I think it's important to manage your expectations here. It's really exciting and it's, it's a very innovative company. The people in that company have a lot of history in the sportswear shoe industry. Uh, and they've really started started this startup brand, and there's a lot of eyes on them. So this is an awareness piece as much as anything in the first instance. When they're available, try a pair. I think they are coming online. I think they're available online. I'm not sure if they're available in Australia yet, but uh, we'll be certainly working with the brand to make sure they are. And I think whilst they might not necessarily look like a lot of wool, it's important to understand that there's about 350 um, grams per square metre in the fabric that goes into that shoe upper. And to give you an idea, it's about 120 grams in a, in a, in a piece of worsted suiting. So it might not like, look like a lot of wool in terms of metres, but there's actually quite a lot of wool in the, in the fabric itself. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good progression for us. CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, John Roberts with Josh Becker. Two to one. 8,000. 707 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Catanning Market today. That's down over 2,000 head from last week's sale. Tracy Kilner, good afternoon. What was the yarding like today? Hi, Belinda. So we had a mixed quality yarding with lambs trending up with the processors chasing heavy weights while feeders were after the well-presented lightweight and store lambs. Poorly presented and grass-set infested lines were of little value. Mutton eased with heavy weathers and prime medium weight ewes carrying a fleece, both making $80 a head. The lightweight lambs sold from $38 to $100. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $83 to $133 a head. Trade weight lambs sold from $120 to $149 and the heavier lambs made up to $170 a head. A mixed quality yarding of merino hoggets saw ewes sell from $10 to $82 while weathers returned $20 to $82. Store use ease selling from ten to forty five dollars, while prime medium weight use made from forty five to eighty dollars carrying a fleece. Heavy use sold from sixty to seventy five dollars. A large yarding of mature rams ease selling from twenty to sixty two dollars a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Tracy. A reminder there's no Mount Barker cattle market this week.